As we look at the book of Haggai tonight, Haggai, you'll notice, is a pretty short book. It's the second shortest book of the Old Testament. There's only two chapters, one chapter longer than the book of Obadiah. And the book of Haggai, with that, is considered a minor prophet, right? He's in what's considered the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. There's a total of 12 prophets that are called minor prophets, um, these prophets range from Hosea, right, which is right after Daniel, all the way to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. And, and they're not called minor prophets, and I believe Tony said this, they're not called minor prophets because what they say is any less important than what's considered the major prophets, but they're minor prophets just because of the size of their book. And you'll see that when you go from Hosea to Malachi, that, that they're all short books, and, and these prophets spoke relatively short utterances. Um, not that it was any less important than, let's say, what Isaiah or Jeremiah said, but they just didn't say as much. And so here in Haggai, we get to the final three books of the Old Testament, and these are specifically called the post-exilic prophets. And what that means, the prophets are typically broken up into three sections. You have the pre-exilic, the pre-exile you have exile, and you have post-exile. So um, some of the pre-exile books, like we're going through one right now, um, Isaiah, right? you have Jeremiah, those are considered pre-exile. And then you also have prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel that are considered exile or exilic prophets. And so Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the three uh, post-exilic prophets. These guys uh, prophesied after the 70-year captivity in, in Babylon. And so what happens, I'm sure many of you are familiar, is, uh, is God brings judgment upon the land of Israel due to their idolatry and their disobedience. And the Babylonians take over the southern uh, kingdom of Judah and they bring them into a 70-year captivity. And so in 538... Uh, a new king comes on, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We, we read about him in the book of Daniel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar dies. The Babylonians uh, get overtaken by the Persians, and this new king rises up, and his name is King Cyrus. And what King Cyrus did, and we read a lot about this in the book of Ezra, but what Cyrus did essentially was he released the Jews back to their land, and he said, look, I want you guys to go back, and I want you to Anybody who wants to go to Jerusalem can, and I want you to go and, you, and build your temple, and I want you to go and serve and worship the God of your land. And we read a lot of this in the book of Ezra. It says specifically that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus and led Cyrus into uh, letting the Jews go. And so that's where we find ourselves in Haggai, um, is this is after the Jews left Babylon. And what happened was, uh, Cyrus actually funded the project. Cyrus actually said, why don't you go back to your land, you go build your temple, we'll even fund it, um, go and serve the God of your land. Now, he didn't recognize it, that it was the God of the universe, but it works for us, right? God still worked through this completely pagan king to work through and, uh, and to establish his purposes with his, with his chosen people. And so what happens is they, they start building this house, they start building the temple, they lay the foundation, and then these people come, uh, the Samaritans, and they begin to, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, we were residing here for all these years. Why don't we help you guys build your temple? And this man named Zerubbabel, which we'll read about 
tonight, this man named Zerubbabel and this high priest named Joshua, they say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, this is our land. This is our God. This is, this is kind of between us and the Lord. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to build this, and we, we don't really need any help. And so what these guys do, the Samaritans, they get pretty butthurt. They come back, and they tell Cyrus, the king, and they're saying, hey, you know, the, these guys are building. Once they start building, you realize that, that they're not, you're not going to be able to tax them or have any control over them. You're letting these people go into their land. They're going to build the temple. They're going to build the walls, and you guys are going to let them go. Now, what's interesting about that is the Jews didn't build their walls before they built the temple. They, they actually built their temple first, and then they built their walls, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, because why would you build the house of God before you built the walls around your city? Well, I, I think part of it was some of them said, hey, you know what? I, I think God is going to be our walls for this one. I, I think we're, we're going to trust in God, and we're going to move forward in God's purposes. And I think the first priority, as opposed to our walls, should be the house of God. And, and that was the initial stirring of the people as they began to build uh, the second temple. Now, what we'll read about tonight is that eventually this did happen. People did start working on other things aside from the house of God, and it led to the, the remnant being completely sidetracked by their own pursuits and desires. So that's where Haggai comes on the scene. Let's try this again. Um, Haggai comes onto the scene. He's the prophet that's going to stir up the spirit. Of, of the remnant of the people, and Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, after the 14 years that this temple had laid, the, the foundation got laid, the Samaritans came in, uh, Cyrus uh, put them to a halt, Cyrus dies, the Persians take over, it's been 14 years, this foundation has been laid, but the house has not yet been built, and they begin to work on other things. They begin to work on their own houses. They begin to pursue their own desires. And Haggai is here to stir up the people to continue in working for the Lord. Uh, many people consider Haggai the alarm clock of the prophets, right? Because alarm clocks, what do they, what do, they do? They, they wake us up before the time is too late, right? We set alarm clocks when we have a, a, a time that we need to wake up for. You know, alarm clocks um, usually don't have the most pleasant sounds, Right? But it's what gets us up and it gets us moving. Right? Nobody puts a nice soft tone on their alarm clock because it sounds great. You did, it'll just make you more sleepy. You want to fall back asleep. Well, this Haggai, the prophet, he's the alarm clock. He's the guy who's going to come and he's going to wake up the people of Israel to continue um, in their worship. So Haggai chapter 1, we'll start here. It says, in the second year... Of King Darius in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So, right off the bat, we'll point out that what you'll notice in the book of Haggai is that every time Haggai speaks, there's a date given to it. That every time God desired to speak to Haggai and Haggai spoke it, they recorded the exact day. And that's actually quite rare when you read the rest of the prophets. Um, you know, some people might, um, you know, a lot of you guys, I'm sure, remember the day you got saved. You know, I, I got married on November 12th, right? There's these big monumental days in our lives that we remember. Um, you know, it wouldn't be very good if someone came and was like, hey, man, when would you get married? And you're thinking like, oh, man, uh, 
88 sometime? They're like, no, that's not what we meant. Like, when, when's your anniversary? And they're like, oh, you know, I don't know, some, sometime in 88, right? That, that would not be good, right? There's, there's supposed to be these monumental days in our lives that we're supposed to remember. You know, when you have a child born on January 1st, you celebrate January 1st every single year, right? It's a monumental day. And in the prophets, we don't always get that. Sometimes we get seasons that the prophets spoke. Sometimes we get the month. Sometimes we just say that it was in the reign of Josiah or it was in the reign of Hezekiah. But the, the Holy Spirit thought that it was important enough in the book of Haggai to say, look, in the sixth month on the first day, that, that day, in the sixth month on the first day, in the second year of King Darius, God spoke to us. God spoke to us through Haggai. You know, they, they were looking back in, the, in their older age and they're thinking, man, remember that day when Haggai spoke to us? Man, that was, that was on the sixth day, the first day the word of the Lord came, man. It had been 14 years, but the word of the Lord came that day and he spoke to us and he stirred us up to continue our service unto the Lord. And I think by way of observation, it's, it's very important to us as Christians and as the church you know, just as God desired to speak to Haggai, uh, God very well or very much so uh, continues to desire to speak to us as God's people. Uh, it's important that we keep our spiritual antennas high because God still desires to speak to us. We think about the days in which you got saved, you know, the, the days that you might have felt the Lord called you to a particular calling. A, a day might have been so special to you that you decided to make a note of it in your Bible that that day... I decided walking with the Lord. And, and what a difference a day can make. Right? So Haggai comes in on the sixth month, the first day of the month. And notice who he speaks to specifically. He speaks to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now notice, Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. Right? And, and Zerubbabel is not a king of Judah. There were no more kings in the land during this time because once the captivity happened, uh, Israel was no longer their, their own individual nation. They, they, were, they no longer had the right to govern themselves. And so now you have a governor because they were still under the Persians. The Persians let them go, but they were still technically under the Persians. And so Zerubbabel is now the governor. But what's cool about Zerubbabel is that Zerubbabel is actually in the lineage of David, right? So the, the messianic line was preserved through the entire exile, and Zerubbabel is actually the grandson of the king Jehoiakim, who lost his kingship during the exile. So they maintained that messianic line throughout the exile, and they make him the governor as they leave. So even through the 70 years of captivity, God preserved that line. And that's important as you continue to read the book of Haggai. You recognize that God makes a very specific promise to Zerubbabel. He says, Zerubbabel, you know, be of good spirit. You know, I, you know there, there are some very, very big plans uh, coming forward. Don't grow discouraged. He says this when they get discouraged in the, in the temple building in chapter 2. He says, don't, don't look at the things that, that are right in front of you. Remember the covenant that I made with you guys when you entered out of the land of Egypt. Just because things may seem down and crushed and there's a pile of rubble, remember the covenant that I made with you guys. Don't, don't forget that I haven't forgotten that. And that's, that was very powerful to them. I mean, you think about 
the Jews who for 70 years basically got the chastening hand of the Lord, and they're thinking like, man, we really did it this time. You know, the, the Lord's really done with us now. Uh, but the Lord still has plans for them. So, anyways, I lost my spot. He says, verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, right? He says this to Joshua, um, the high priest, and to Zerubbabel. He says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, that this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should not be built. So God is reproving these people, and he's saying, why is this work not getting done? Why, the people are saying it's not time for this work to get done. Why, why, what's up with the excuses? It's been 14 years. Um, you started off and you were excited. We read that in, in, in the book of Ezra, that when they initially started building the temple, everybody was fired up. They were stoked, right? They get a little bit of opposition. The work dies out and, and it just, it, it, they kind of let it run. It's, it'd been for, over 14 years, 14 to 16 years, um, that this foundation had laid bare. And so it's almost as God is saying, look, I stirred up the spirit of a completely pagan king who has no idea who the Lord God of Israel is. I stirred up his spirit and actually caused him to lead you guys out and to allow you to take the vessels that we took from the original temple. I funded the project. I told you guys to go back to your land. And now you're saying that the time has not come. I mean, what, what other doors do I have to open for you? I mean, God is seriously, you know, asking the question, what's going on? This people, right? You know it's not good when God calls his people this people, right? He's not saying my children. He's saying this, this people, what, what are they doing? They're, they're not acting accordingly. They're not acting like my people. And I think, too, also just uh, us as Christians, you know, th there's times where we can act not in a Christian manner. And, and we may not even be doing something that's uh, blatantly sinful, but, but, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, look, all things are lawful, but that doesn't mean everything is helpful, right? There's things that we can do that might not necessarily be um, some grievous sin, excuse me, but it's not Christ-like. You know, there, there's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, thou shalt not smoke cigarettes, but there's a part of us where it's like, I don't know, is that, is that a very good public witness? You know, I'm not, like, is, is, is that, it might not be against the law, but is it really helpful to your Christian walk? You know, maybe instead of asking the question, what can I do to be a Christian, or what can I be a Christian and still do, maybe the question is, you know, how much can I go without uh, as a Christian? You know, maybe it's not, what can I get away with, but what can I go without? And, and so God is saying, look, this people, they're not acting like my people, and you say that the time hasn't come. And look, for, for, the, for the Jews of the time, if, if we're being honest, if we were to put ourselves in their shoes, there probably were some decent uh, excuses as to why they weren't building the temple. There were some legitimate fears. You know, you think about the Samaritans coming and actually opposing them and actually uh, stopping the work. There, there was some physical opposition to what was going on. I mean, it wasn't just some spiritual warfare, and they were feeling discouraged. There were real people in standing in front of them saying, you need to stop building this temple of God. So it had been desolate for 70 years. There, there's a massive project going on. We were physically opposed, right? You got to think about the land. This land had not been, you know, it, 
people weren't nurturing the dirt for 70 years. I mean, it's not the best farming land. You got to think about your homes and your current living situation. Where am I going to put the kids? God, I got five kids. I got to do something with them, right? I got to provide for my own household. So Lord, why, why would I work on your house? I got to provide for my family, you know? And I think this draws an important application for us because, look, God, God isn't trying to ask us to do things that, that we, um, you know, simply can't do. God doesn't ask us to do something and then not supply the power to do such. And during this time, though there were some probably very real reasons as to why they weren't working on the Lord's house, I think what God's trying to say is, look, it's not a good enough excuse. I understand that things are hard. I understand. I'm not asking you to leave your family. I'm not asking you to, you know, to ship your kids off and, and to, you know, not spend any time with your kids. I'm not asking you to do something that's completely out of balance. But he says, you've completely stopped altogether. You, there, there's no balance. You, you completely put down your work under the Lord and you completely picked up your own desires. It says in verse 3, he says, if it's not time uh, to build the house of the Lord, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So the issue wasn't that they were uh, putting their actual familial needs um, it, it, the problem wasn't that they were taking those things into consideration. The problem was that they were excessively obsessing over their own personal needs as opposed to um, worshiping God. It, it was a matter of priorities. It, it wasn't necessarily that you built a nice house for yourself. It was the fact that you built a nice house for yourself of the neglect of me. Um, and, and just as God has a foundation laid and, and desires to build the temple, let me let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And, um, you know, God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, He says, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Verse 11, He says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, He says, each one's work will become clear. And so, now, in I, just to be clear, I, I don't want to reinterpret the book of Haggai. I, I don't want to completely spiritualize what I believe that God meant to be literal. But I do believe that God, in his infinite wisdom, draws quite, quite a picture for us in the New Testament as to what our lives should be considered as Christians. He says in verse 16 of the same chapter, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of, the, of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So just as God had a physical temple that he was trying to build that was being neglected, we as the church are considered the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us as Christians. So we, here we have this picture in the New Testament of, of a, a work of God that was neglected. And by way of application, maybe tonight we have a work of God that we've neglected ourselves. Maybe, maybe there's something that the Lord might have prompted us to start but, but we've just completely neglected, whether that was something that we've never began to start, whether it's something that we're hemming and hawing about, or maybe we started it and we were all fired up about it for the first couple years. And then slowly and surely, it kind of just, it decayed into nothing. And so, God has a work for us. 
just as God had a work for Israel, God also has a work for us. And I think it's important for us to recognize that as a Christian, one of the glorious parts about being a Christian is that we always have a purpose. Christians are never left without a purpose. You know, so many people wander in this world thinking that their life is completely purposeless. But as Christians, we are given a purpose in every single situation. You know, as, as a young man or as a young woman or uh, as a middle-aged man, a middle-aged woman, a grandparent, right? Throughout all different stages of life, God always has a calling upon our lives in every circumstance. And immediately, we might think things pertaining to church, right? We think about the actual church building and all the ministry that happens in the church. And we think of the AV booth and children's ministry and worship and maintenance and youth ministry and young adults. And we have all the church ministries that happen. But notice also, I'll point to Ephesians chapter 5 real quick. Paul in Ephesians 5 lays down six other ones that, that are completely unrelated and don't have to happen directly inside the church building. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, here's your job. Love your wives. That's your calling. If you're wondering what your calling is, and you're saying, Lord, I don't have a calling. Well, do you have a wife? Well, yeah. Well, there's your calling. That's your calling. You're a husband. That's your calling. As a Christian, as a man who has a wife, your calling is to be a husband. There, there's no if, ands, or buts. You know, and if you try to convince yourself that that's not your calling, you, you can't let what is written, uh, if, if you can't follow the will of God for what is written, how can you be in the will of God in what's not written, right? So first and foremost, we need to stick to the scriptures. What's our calling? He says, husbands, there's your job. Wives, here's your jobs. It says, see to it that her wife respects and submits to her husband. There's your job. It says, fathers, uh, don't provoke your children to anger. So fathers, you have a job. Don't provoke your children to anger. Raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's your, that's your calling as a father. It says, children, even if you're a kid and you're thinking, at least I got out of it. No, Paul says, children, you still have a duty too. And man, I wish I knew this when I was still living at home. The fact that God could even have a call upon someone's life as a child. He says, children, you still have a calling. This is what you do, children. You obey your parents. That's what you do as children of the Lord. You obey your parents. He says, bond servants. If you're an employer, if you have a job, if you're running a business. He says, bond servants, obey your masters. He says, don't do it as I service but do it as unto the Lord. So if you're working a job, work that job as unto the Lord. If you're a carpenter, swing the hammer as hard as you can. Tear it up. If, if you're a computer scientist, make the sickest websites you can find. Do, do what you got to do. Do it as unto the Lord. Everybody has their specific calling in life. If you're a 20-year-old uh, computer scientist and you're a 60-year-old computer scientist, I'm not a computer scientist. I know nothing about computers. But you got to be kidding me if you tell me that there's not a little bit of personality woven into how you might do your job. And the Lord has a specific calling for you just as he has a specific calling upon someone else. So bond servants, there's your calling. Masters, he says, masters, your calling is just like the bond servant's calling. He says, you do likewise. You treat your, you treat your employees uh, fair and you treat them justly. And he says, because know also that you too have a master in heaven. And that's where you'll receive your reward. So the point being, there is a calling for every single Christian under the sun. 
your life always has a purpose. And I think in, in application, as we look at the days of Haggai and how they were neglecting their calling, are there areas in our lives where we may be neglecting our calling? You know, are, are we maybe not treating our, our spouses as we need to be treating them? You know, are, are we not treating our children the way that God is calling us to treat our children? If, if you're a child and you're still living under the roof of your parents, are you uh, relating to your parents in a way that God would have you relate to your parents? And I get it. If, if you're a young adult and you're living at your parents' house, I, look, I understand God doesn't say agree with your parents and everything. He says respect them and obey them. He doesn't say you got to be of, you know, he doesn't say you need to try to, you know, walk in uniformity. He just says respect and obey them. doesn't mean you can't have a difference of opinion, but respect and obey them just as you would as an employee to an employer. You know, grandparents, right? Grandparents have such a huge impact on their grandchildren. I mean, I, one of the most influential people in my lives have been my grandparents, the, the people that just can unconditionally love their grandchildren can make such a huge impact on a little kid's life. You have no idea. I mean, it can completely change the direction of their lives depending on grandparents. Are you doing what you're called to do as, as grandparents, as unto the Lord? Are you treating your grandchildren as unto the Lord? You know, one of the, you know, I, I heard something recently and it was very powerful. It kind of struck me to the heart. You know, I, I don't know who said it, so I can't give credit. But he said, there's never a shortage of people who want to do big things for the Lord. The problem is that there's not enough people that want to do the little things for the Lord. And I was like, man, ain't that the truth, man? Like, Lord, help me and help all of us. Not, not to diminish the little things that we may do for the Lord. Not to neglect our calling. You know, Jesus says that if... Even a cup of cold water in my name. He says, surely that person will not lose the reward. A cup of cold water. You know, someone could go back there and pour up a cup of cold water in five seconds and say, Lord bless you. And you're going to get rewarded in heaven for that. You know, Paul tells Timothy, and, and I love this passage in Timothy. Um, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. He says, I charge you in the presence of Jesus... I want, here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach the word in season and out of season. That's, that's your job. Teach it. I want you to reprove people, rebuke people, and exhort people. He says, I want you to also do the work of an evangelist. And finally, he says, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. And not, not everybody has the same ministry, but, but we're to fulfill it, just as the Jews did in the days of Haggai. That, that we're to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has put upon our hearts. So, verse 3, or no, I'm sorry, verse 5. As the Israelites neglected their calling, as we might potentially neglect our calling, as we might be discouraged in our own ministries, as we might be discouraged in our own callings, whether that's in the house or in the church, God has a couple words to deal with that. And he says in verse 5, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts to the people who have their priorities in the wrong spot. He says, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And, you know, I think it's very easy as Christians 
especially if you come to church pretty often. Like it, it's super, super easy to hear things for them to go through one ear and out the other, right? We do it every Sunday, if we're being honest, right? There, there's a lot of times where we can hear things, and, and there's things that we sit there and we're like, yep, good stuff, and, uh, and we pack up our ball and we go home. And look, I'm not trying to uh, condemn that type of attitude, and I don't think God is either. I, I think God, in a, in a heart of gentleness, as any good father, saying, consider your ways. Just consider it. I'm not asking you, to go and sell your home, and to go live in the Himalayas. I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't called you to do, but just consider your ways. In what areas have you potentially neglected uh, what I've put on, your ha- put on your heart to do? And it might not even be a specific ministry. It might just be our own personal relationships with God. You know, maybe it's not necessarily um, something that we're doing for someone else. Maybe it's our own relationships with God that we need to take into consideration and and consider our ways. Maybe we're walking in a way that's potentially unhealthy. Maybe we're walking in a way that's grieving the Holy Spirit. We're walking in a particular sin, or we have this kind of attitude in a season that's just not pleasing to God. Saying, consider your ways. You know, and, and all these things matter to God. God God cares about what you do. You know, we're going to be, um, when, when we meet God and, and he judges us for what we did with Jesus, and, and I'm not saying judges us for our sin, right? For those who are in Christ, our sin has been dealt with, but, but we're going to have to hold account for what we've done now that we're Christians. What, what did you do with what I gave you to do? We're going to be held accountable for that, and we're going to be based, it's going to be based off of our faithfulness with what God has given us. And so, just to put this into consideration, I, I looked up how much the average person uh, spends on TV or on their phone. And uh, the average person, actually, I'll start with this. The average person spends three hours and 15 minutes a day on their cell phone. So that's just their cell phone, right? And so, for all the young whippersnappers out there who are always on their phones, right? Three hours. But, hold on, we'll, because I don't want to do this impartially. The same amount is for the TV, right? So, so for everyone who comes home and clicks on the TV, kicks their feet up, you spend three hours too. Right? We're, we're all spending so much time in things that are completely unnecessary. And so what I'm not saying is we're going to go cut our, our cable cords, uh, but I am saying what, what if we just... Actually, does anyone even have cable anymore? I don't know. But just consider our ways. It, could we... If we just cut that in half, I mean, imagine if we spent three hours and 15 minutes a day with the Lord in prayer, we'd be like spiritual gym rats, right? I mean, we we would be doing some sick stuff if we spent that much time with the Lord. And so God isn't trying to lay down the law of of a strict rebuke and tell you to go pound sand and, and sit in the corner. He's saying, just consider your ways. You know, grace is the most demanding gospel that there is. You know, the, the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that every other religion seeks to work up to God, but the difference between Christianity is that God came down to us and, and that we don't have to uh, fulfill this requirement that, that we can't fulfill. God came down and fulfilled it for us, and that by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can be made right. And the great thing about that is it's not of our own doing. It's purely by grace. 
But here's the part of grace, right? The law just kicks you down. When you fall and you stumble and you're wasting time and you're doing things you shouldn't do, the law just kicks you down and tells you that, yeah, you're right, you should just give up. But the powerful part about grace is Ephesians 2. It says we were dead, but Christ raised us. He made us alive, right? So we can say, oh, God, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a worm. I suck. I sin. He's like, I forgave you for that. But God, you don't understand my sin. I forgave you already. I already forgave you for this. Are you going to keep complaining? I already forgave you. But by the time you're even complaining about it, it's already washed in the blood. Quit complaining about it. Shake a leg. We're burning daylight. You got work to do, right? That's, that's, the, that's the awesome thing about the gospel is that there's so much grace that we have no more room to sit and complain about our circumstances because the gospel of grace shakes us off, pats us, pats us off, and says, get back to work, son. I, I've, already, I've already fulfilled the requirement for you. There's no reason to walk in condemnation. I've already accomplished it. My son said it is finished. There's nothing else to do. Walk in what I've called you to do. Regardless of whether we might have messed up or whatever's going on, the, the Lord covers it in his blood, and we are called to continue to pursue what he has called us to pursue. So, verse chapter, or verse chapter, come on. Verse 6, after he says, consider your ways. He says, you have sown much and bring in little. He says, you eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, and no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with a hole. And so, he's saying, look, con consider your ways. He goes, you're wondering why the land isn't producing anything. L look at your ways. You know, one thing about the nation of Israel is God made a covenant with them. And we see this in Deuteronomy. We see this in the law, but in, specifically in Deuteronomy, God lays out this curse in chapter 28, where he says, look, you walk in obedience, blessing. If you walk in disobedience, you get a curse, right? It, it, the physical was a direct representation of the spiritual. So for the nation of Israel, Haggai could say, look, consider your ways. Look at the land. It's not producing anything. What's going on? He's saying, you're... You've sown much, and you're bringing in little. It says you're eating, and you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. He says, look at the land. Look at the fruit of your ways. It's, it's not producing anything. Uh, nothing productive is coming out of this. How, how is that working out for you? You know, and I think very similarly in our lives, maybe not you know, and, and I don't think as, as the church we can, you know, say I think there's been some prosperity gospels and prosperity preachers who have severely twisted us to a completely dangerous and, and false doctrine. So I don't want to try to say that as the church that our um, material blessings are complete and uh, complete representations of the spiritual because I think God has worked differently with us. That, that it's no longer... Uh, do this and I'll bless you materially and disobey here and I will curse you materially. You know, Jesus actually, it says in Colossians 3 that, that now in Christ, Colossians 3 says we're supposed to seek the things that are above where Christ sits. 
you know, so, so we don't necessarily uh, have to look just because, you know, maybe the Atlantic City electric bill went up. It's not like, oh, God, what did I do wrong? Did I sin? You raised my electric bill. You know, it's not like that anymore. But God is saying specifically to Israel, he said, look, consider your ways. What's the fruit of your ways? What's the fruit that's coming out of this? And I think us spiritually as Christians consider the fruit of our ways. You know, are there things that we're doing in our own lives that, that aren't bearing fruit? Uh, even if we're doing really well financially, are there situations in our lives that are clearly flying flat? They're, they're not working. Our efforts are failing. God just says, consider your ways. What's, what's the fruit of this? He says, you're working hard. You're doing all the things you thought, but you're not getting the blessing. And he goes, why is that? It's because you have your misplaced priorities. He said, you guys are dwelling, verse 3, in your paneled houses. You know, the, the paneled houses aren't just, you know, there's a difference between building a house and then and building a luxurious house. You know, he's saying, look, you're, you're building your luxurious house, your upgraded house, to the expense of my house. And, and, and that's not how it's supposed to go. You know, when I was, when I had just gotten saved, I really, really struggled with the fact that I did not want to give my life to the Lord. Like, I, I had, you know, I, I got to the point, well, I should rephrase that. I got to the point where I received Christ into my life. And I, I was like walking very, very shallowly with the Lord. I was coming to church a little bit, read my Bible every, every now and again. And, and one of the things that was, and I was never satisfied. I was always frustrated like, I could never seem to find traction in my Christian life. I was always wondering, like, man, this Christianity thing, I don't know, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm not that spiritual. I've never been, like, a super spiritual guy, and, you know, this just seems a little much. But part of the biggest hindrance for me, what I realized over time, was that I was terrified of giving my desires and my goals to God. I was terrified, because I was so convinced. I was like, God, I, I almost I know that you're real, but I'm I'm actually really scared to give you my desires. I'm I'm terrified because I want them so badly that I'm afraid that if I give them to you, you won't you won't bless them. I'm afraid that if I commit my ways to you, that I won't get the blessing that I want. And and I was so frustrated because I, I was genuinely concerned. I, you know, I, I was I, I want to walk with God, but I just I just don't think I can give you my desires and goals. You know, and, and that's exactly what was happening here. He says, look, I'm not asking, um, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't have your paneled house. I'm not saying that you can't have your uh, luxurious things. I'm just saying that I don't want those luxurious things in your paneled house. I don't want those things to have you. That's the problem. I, I want you to continue to serve. I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but I'm saying that I don't want those things to have control over you and take superiority over my over your relationship with me. And so that was the situation that they were running into. And notice, they were never satisfied. He says, you're, you're eating, but you never have enough. You know, you're drinking, but you're, you're not filled with drink. You're, you're clothing yourselves, but, but you're not warm. And notice, too, the last part. He says, and he who earns wages, he says he earns wages to put them in a bag with holes. And so of, of the specific curses here, this is the one where, where they're deciding where they're putting this. You know, you, you can work the land, but, I mean, if you're not getting rain, what good is all the work that you just did? If, if you're in a drought, what, there, 
it's it's worthless. You can you can work the land all you want, but if God doesn't bring rain, your crops are dying. But he says here, you earn wages and you put them into a bag with holes. He's like, you're you're actually putting them in things that are not giving you a good investment. He says, you're making a bad investment. He goes, invest in what satisfies. Consider your ways. He's like, you're, pu- you're putting this into something that was never meant to satisfy you. You're putting it into a bag with holes. He says, verse 7, consider your ways. You know, one thing I, I appreciate that Tony says is God is omniscient, right? So God never has a, sh- a shortage of things to say. And so when God says something twice, he obviously means it, right? He obviously is, is saying something by the fact that he repeats himself, that, that God is not running out of things to say, and so he just repeats himself. He repeats himself because he's trying to consider, he's, he's trying to have us genuinely consider our ways. What, you know, what are areas in my life that, that I might not be genuinely seeking the Lord? You know, if I, if I could go back to my own personal example, you know, the, I felt as if, you know, all right, Lord, I, I want to go to church. I want to, I want to do the thing. I want to read my Bible. I, I, you know, there, there, I think there was a genuine interest in, in my heart at that time, but there was a portion of my life that I genuinely did not want the Lord to touch. There, there was a part of me that I was thinking, I'm going to reserve this part of it because I really want this one. You know, in Ephesians chapter three, you know, it, it, Paul prays that, that Christ would dwell in your hearts. That, that not just that Christ would live in your heart, right? Because as Christians, we all have Christ dwelling inside of us and we all have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But the point in Ephesians 3 is not just the Holy Spirit being inside of us, but that Christ is dwelling and making a home in our hearts. That, that every part of our heart, every part of our soul, God has access to. That, that God is not, that, that we are not taking a part of our life and we are shutting the door on Jesus, Lord, I don't want you to go in that closet because that closet's pretty nasty. That, that there might be a, a part of our lives that, that we might not letting, letting Jesus exercise his genuine lordship in our own lives. And so God, like a good loving father, doesn't ask us to do things that he doesn't empower us to do. So look what he does in verse 8. He gives some simple instructions. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up to the mountain and bring wood. And I want you to build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. So God lays down the truth very clearly. He says, here's what I want you to do. You're doing it wrong. You've put down my house. You've picked up your house. You've picked up your own selfish pursuits. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider your ways, consider the thoughts, consider the areas that you're not um, you know, fulfilling uh, what I have called you to do. Consider those things, and I want you to go and do what I have called you to do. And for the Israelites, it was very simple. He says, I want you to go up to the mountains, I want you to bring the wood, and I want you to build the temple. You know, and, and the Jews, you know, at this point, God says, look, you, you just got to go up to the mountain right there and grab the wood, and then just bring it back down and build it. The, the Jews didn't have the excuse of saying, oh, you know, we didn't we didn't have the engineers, you know, it didn't pass county, you know, kind of, we're waiting God, it just, that, that wasn't the excuse here. You, God says, look, I know what you need to do, you need to go up, you need to grab the wood, and you need to come down, and you need to build the house. You know, he's, he's not asking something impossible 
of his children. And he's not doing the same thing for us. You know, as, as we're walking out and trying to fulfill the ministry that God has given us, uh, there's times that can be very difficult. And, and whether that's a particular part of ministry that's happening inside the church building, you know, th- think about relational issues. Think about family issues that, that, like, I'm sure we all have parts of family that, that there's some sticky situations in those. And, and there's a particular family member, or there's a particular family situation that, that we might just be called to be a part of. And, and as Christians, we are called to bring a light into the situation, that, that we're called to be the salt to this particular situation where it is just complete and utter darkness in this situation, where everybody involved is at each other's throats, everybody's angry, everybody's walking on eggshells, and the Lord's called us. He goes, Ryan, you're the Christian in the situation. I, I, want, I want you to tackle that. Why, why aren't you doing that? You're, you're, you're the Christian of everybody. Why, why don't you go for it, right? And so God is not asking us to do something that he has not called us to do, right? He's saying, look, if, if he's calling you to do it, you can trust that he is going to provide the power for us to accomplish it. You know, um, God does not make ill-informed decisions. He's not going to call us something that, to, you know, where he's saying, you know, you have no resources, you can't do it, uh, you have no idea how you're going to do it. You know, if God calls you to something, if you end up finding yourself in a situation, know that God has given you the tools to do it. So, verse 9. Sorry, lost my spot. He says, verse 9, build the temple that I may take pleasure in it be glorified. He says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. So God continues to tell them why, why, why they are having such a hard time. It, and really what it comes down to is it's their priorities. Uh, God was trying to get to their attention through a physical hardship. Notice he says, you looked for much, but it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. So they actually were seeking, they found it, and they actually got it. And they brought it to themselves. They went out and they got what they were looking for, and they brought it to their own home. And God says, I blew it away. I, I took what you brought, all the effort that you went to go and to get whatever you were looking for. You went out and you actually accomplished it. You brought it home, and you know what I did? I blew it away. And, and why, why did I blow it away? Why did I want, you know, God isn't trying to blow it away just, just so you can be some miserable child of God. God blew it away because he wants to get your attention. He says, look, you're, you're sowing and you're not bringing in anything. You're eating and you're never satisfied. So the reason I'm, I'm causing you to run into this uh, situation, the reason I'm causing you to, to fall into this particular hardship and this issue is because I'm trying to get your attention. As a loving father, I'm not just cursing you just to curse you, just to make fun of you so that you can feel like a worm. I'm actually bringing this upon you to get your attention so that you would actually seek that which does satisfy. And he says, you're taking this thing and you're not using it to worship me. You're, You're using it for your own selfish ambition. And so think about the things in our lives, all the things that, that we go out and we strive to get 
and it just doesn't satisfy as we thought it would. You know, I, I think of like all the, the famous uh, people or actually you can think of like any Disney star channel that was an actor when they were a kid. Like they all ended up completely like strung out, right? And, and you think about how all these kids or even adults, right? You think about all these people that acquire so much in life. They acquire that absolute goal that they desired, the thing that made them who they were. And it never satisfied once they got it. Once they got it, they realized that, that it was completely empty. You know, I'm sure we all have heard of someone or know someone who accomplished every single goal that they had set out to do in this world. They, they accomplished everything. That was the one thing that they found their identity in. And they set their hearts to it. They worked the 80 hours a week. They busted their tail. They put in the hours. They had the relationships. They had the connections. They worked towards it. They were a workhorse. They accomplished their dreams. He says, you actually went out, you brought it home, and when you came, I blew it away. It never satisfied you. And the reason it never satisfied you, that was my doing. The reason it doesn't satisfy you is because I'm trying to get your attention. Because I, I want to actually talk to you. I, w I want you to respond. I want you to talk to me. I want you to enter into a relationship. I want you to pursue on, uh, of that which does satisfy. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are those people. Why? Because those people will be filled. That, that actually hungering and thirsting for righteousness and hungering and thirsting for things that do satisfy and hungering and thirsting for things that God has called us to do, the ministry that God has put us in, the ministry that God has uh, equipped us to fulfill, that's what God wants you to seek because that's where you'll, you will find your ultimate calling, your ultimate purpose, and, and the reason as to why you are and where you are, the place that you are. You know, in, in Esther, uh, you know, it's, it's said of Esther that, I um, forgot who said it, but he says, Esther, you were born for such a time as this, that, that this very... Uh, season in this moment that you're in, you were born for this particular reason, that, that this season, this situation that you find yourselves in, every single thing that you've encountered through life, every single situation that you've had to overcome or hardship or uh, family situation or, you know, some type of temple service that happened, everything has worked up to this moment in your, in, in your life. And in your particular ministry, everything has worked up to this moment that God has providentially worked all these things for what he's called you to do. And he expects you to fulfill it. You know, the, the Jews in his day says, look, I, I stirred up a pagan king. I stirred up someone that doesn't even know me. And, he, and, and I stirred up his spirit and he released you. And you're saying that the time hasn't come. I, I've done everything for you. I've, I've parted the Red Seas for you. I've brought you into a land flowing with milk and honey. You begged for a king. I gave you a king. You know, uh, sooner or later, I had to judge your sin. I'm sorry, I still love you. Uh, sooner or later, I, I, had to, I had to raise up an instrument. I had to discipline you. I had to get your attention, right? But he's saying, look, um, that, that's why these things are not satisfying. It's because you're, you're searching for them in all the wrong places. And so, He says, look, I blew this away because my house 
is in ruins and every one of you runs to his own house. So you're, you're completely not paying attention to what actually matters. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the new oil, on whatever the ground brings forth and the men of your livestock and all the labor of your hands. So God is, is withholding this physical blessing from his people because he desires to get their attention. And so what's the response here? We see in verse 12, it says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. So now, we see the result of the Lord's spoken word to his people. And, and, and we also see the proper response. Uh, what did they do? They, they heard the word of the Lord through Haggai, and they responded with obedience. And so just as God speaks to us on a particular day, in a particular moment, just as God calls us to our own ministries, just as God calls us to do the things that he has asked us to do, he, he expects obedience. And he wants us to obediently, as, as children, fulfill what he has called us to do. Um, verse 13, it says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the spirit, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And notice when they did it. They did this on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year. So God speaks through Haggai with three comforting words for his people. And I, and I believe the same for tonight, that three comforting words for us tonight as, as we continue to walk out and try to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has called us. He says, I am with you. Oh, that's four words, sorry. He said, I am with you. He said, look, of, of all the things that you could potentially be discouraged about, of, of all the hardships, you know, wh whether you're, you know, a mom, a dad, uh, an aunt or an uncle, a grandparent, uh, you know, whether you're serving in a particular church ministry, of all the hardships that can come along with all that. He says, I want you to know this. I'm with you. And, and that I and I have every desire of continuing to be with you. And notice, this is so important too. This is important. Because for the Jews, they had been in this land for 70 years. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. You, you got to imagine that they're thinking that they are totally toast. You know, why would God ever want to work with me? You know, think about Peter. Why would, God has no reason to, to show grace to me. I've failed him in so many ways. Think about what they're feeling. And now they're saying, man, I got to build this house. God probably doesn't even like us anymore. We're, we're expected to build this house. God, God is probably angry with us. And God says, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm with you. I haven't left you yet. I, I'm still here. I still plan on fulfilling the promises. And you got to think about it. There were probably a million Jews in Babylon. I mean, you, you're thinking of an entire nation in Babylon. 50,000 returned. 50,000 people returned. There, there was just a small remnant of people that actually returned. 
So how encouraging do you think that is to know that God is with us? You know, we think about us as, us as part of the church, and we think about all that's going on in the world. We think about, man, there are no Christians left. There's nobody. The entire world's against us. Really, the entire world is against us. Uh, you know, pe- people don't attack conservative Christians for their sin. They attack conservative Christians with their sin, right? They don't just attack people for what they did. They use what they did, and then they try to just blow them up with it, right? Am I wrong? Everything that, that we are doing is being watched, and they, there is every desire to attack us with any sort of mishap, right? The, there are genuine dark forces that are against what we're doing. And just as there's a remnant with the people of Israel, the church is a remnant. There, there's a remnant of people that are out there that are working for the Lord. And God says, no matter how many people decided to stay in Babylon, I'm still with you guys. I, I still have a, a, a purpose for what uh, I have called you to do. And he gave them a promise. You know, he gave, uh, you know, the Jews a promise. He promised the Messiah. He promised the future glory of the temple. He says in Haggai 2, he says, look, the latter glory of this temple will be so much better than the former. And you know why? Because the Messiah walked up those steps. The Messiah came and he made all things right. He died on the cross. And, and he fulfilled every purpose that, that God had intended for him so that we might have the righteousness of God. So he says, regardless of how small or insignificant your ministry may seem, he says, just trust me, I'm with you. I have every plan and, and, and I have every purpose to fulfill uh, what I have called you to do. And so real quick, and, and we'll wrap this up. The, the overarching message of Haggai is, is really just spiritual priorities. Um, these people were discouraged and God calls them to put their priorities straight. And I'll, I'll leave with this illustration. There was a businessman who brought this giant mason jar and like this big old lid on top, right? And he brought this to all of his business students that he was teaching. And all these students are sitting around and he goes, he, he takes, he has a, you know, under his desk, he takes out all these rocks that are about hand sized and he fills them with the jar. Right? And he fills it till there's no more rocks. And he lifts up the jar. He says, is this jar full? And all the students say, well, of course it is. You filled it with rocks. He goes, no, it's not, actually. He picks gravel. And he shakes the gravel in there and shakes the jar around. And he goes, all right, how about now? Is the jar full now? They go, well, well now it is. Yeah, you, know, you put rocks and gravel in it. It's definitely full. And he says, no, it's actually, it's still not full. Then he takes sand. And he fills the jar with sand. And he shakes it up, gets all the sand. He goes, how about now? And one courageous student goes, no, you can, I think you can fit more in here. He's like, yeah, you're right. So then he gets a bottle of water, and he fills the jar all the way to the top. And he goes, now is this full? And every student goes, yeah, that thing's full. And he goes, so what's the purpose of this? Why did I show any of you? And one student goes, no matter how busy you are, you can always fit a little bit more in. And the professor goes, no, that's actually not it. He goes, what I'm trying to tell you is that if you don't put the big things in first, you'll never get them in later. And so life's busy. We all know that life is busy. But put the first things first. Serve God. We're supposed to serve God with the first, with the first fruits. And uh, we provide our part. God provides his part. God does not expect us to do something supernatural. He says, you do what, you've call, you do what I've called you to do. And you just trust me to fulfill my end, right? So 
Let's pray. Let's have Kyle come up. He's going to close us in a couple more songs.